0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School and an MA candidate at the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Monica Brain Engel. She's a co-founder and partner at Quona, a venture capital fund exclusively focused on fintech companies in emerging markets. Quona invests in disruptive innovations and aims to create a more financially inclusive world. Prior to co-founding Quona, Monica was the founder and managing director of Axion Frontier Investments Group, a growth stage fintech portfolio. She also launched and managed Axion's Marketing and Product Development Unit, where she oversaw the creation of new financial services to move the industry beyond microcredit. Monica holds an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, a Master of Arts from Stanford University, and a Bachelor of Arts from Williams College. And now, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Monica brain Engel. Well, welcome, Monica. Thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. How about we start by uh, you telling us a little bit about your personal background?
1: Sure. Uh, As I mentioned, I am a product of a multicultural, multi-religious family, and that very much formed my view of focusing on what connects us, which I think is much more powerful than what differentiates us. So as a daughter of an immigrant mom who didn't speak English when she arrived, and a father who I think always who himself grew up in sort of a depression era mentality. And uh, very much I, I used to call him Calvinist more than the religions he practiced. I, I think this idea of of connecting the diverse, but also this notion of I would call it scarcity and privilege. So, you no, know, you know, we grew up in a very I would call it you know middle class upbringing, and in some senses, because there was a lot of estrangements. I mean, my mother had left her family in Peru. My father had married outside the the religion, so it was ostracized. You know, we were quite isolated. So the sense of scarcity or are being disconnected or cut off. But yet, I always grew up with a feeling of being very privileged and that I got a good education, I was living in the United States, which, you know, sort of, uh, and by my own parents' example, you could change the outcome by your efforts. So this real feeling of gratitude and also responsibility. So. Seeing my family in Peru, that uh, themselves who I think were privileged—they came from Europe, you know, in the early 1900s—but lived through some very turbulent times in Peru, Luminoso, the Shining Path, and it's pretty radical efforts redistribution that left them, you know, landless. This notion that I had a responsibility, even though I was in the United States, living a very separate life from my family, which they're from the mountains of Peru, they're from huancayo so you know this notion of you know feeling and i you know grew up in a suburb of new york so feeling very disconnected in terms of my reality versus theirs but given that you know we were raised for you know reminding us like every birthday i get 10 calls from all of my aunts this notion of feeling that we are connected and that we're responsible not just for our own lives but for our families and the broader community so that very much shaped both the career choices I made, I knew early on that I wanted to do development, but I didn't know if I wanted to do it sort of in the kind of the World Bank route and get a PhD in academia versus what my dad did, which was work in business and promote kind of global businesses, work in global businesses that had some responsible elements. So all of those, I think, are very much evident in my own career path and, and what uh, the mission of Corona is.
0: That's a fascinating and eclectic background that you have. How did it always lead you in the direction of investing in emerging markets?
1: It always led me. The one thread is financial services. So I'm a big believer in the power of financial services as a lever to affect change. And certainly, for example, early in my career, I did financial services in the US, so I was in California, I moved there. After undergrad and after working, actually, I worked at Harvard Business School, was my first job. This again, this idea that should I go into academia or business? And Harvard Business School was kind of the blend of both and cured me of any interest in academia forever. <laughs> um, but uh, I and, and moved to California as this sort of, again, this, this is the 90s where the internet boom is, is beginning. This idea of technology-driven innovation and just venture capital really, really captivated my imagination. But what I was doing there was financial services. I was working at a startup uh, lending or alternative lender that was created, you know, kind of in partnership with some of the leading banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and I was also a loan officer. And I think financial services is the thread. And if you define emerging markets as any market that was underserved, then yes, I've always been doing financial services in emerging market or investing in emerging markets. But in this case, the emerging market was... Uh, the US <laughs> and some of the underserved communities there. It wasn't until business school, I went to Stanford, that I worked in you know, sort of developing markets like South Africa and Latin America.
0: Got it. And so take us through the early days of, of you considering starting Wana and, and launching the the fund. How, how was your t- thought process and how did you land on actually pulling the, the trigger?
1: So I went, as I mentioned, to business school because I was working in alternative lending, working in financial services, and had a real conviction of the power that financial services could play at both the household level and a macro level, really thinking that it was a, a measure of agency on a tool that could materially impact the outcome of someone's life. So what I needed to change was this sense of I was working very locally and in Silicon Valley in the 90s, it was myopic. I mean, everything that you read about, talked about in your social life was happening on the quarters of 280. So, really feeling that I was needed to connect again to the broader international community. So, went to a business school with that goal and uh, ended up in South Africa, mainly because of this very inspired, inspired by what was happening with the post apartheid regime and trying to build a new society where it was trying to be inclusive in this design and was recruited to Accion um, by actually someone who's still a mentor of mine. His name is Michael Chu, very similar to your background. Actually, a Chinese, just Chinese they escaped uh, during the revolution to Uruguay. So he speaks fluent Mandarin, fluent Spanish, um, ended up uh, in New York in Wall Street before uh, joining Accion as its CEO. And he said two things to me that I think still I will answer your question on why did we launch Crona. He said, one, Monica, the only way to address a problem as immense as world poverty is to mobilize a resource equally as plentiful, and that's the world's capital markets. And the second thing he said was, we cannot be patient with poverty. And if you want to make a dent in poverty, you need to look at tools that move quickly. And I think financial inclusion is exactly that tool. And so that is really the, the genesis of Quona came from Action and the idea of using capital markets as a powerful lever to affect poverty alleviation. So that general thought was Action, Where Quona comes in was actually adding the technology element. So how can we use technology-enabled business models to really supercharge the model of financial inclusion and address some of the limitations of cost and what I call mono product. So it was sort of a hammer looking for a nail versus understanding being truly customer centric and understanding how can we tailor the financial service offering so it really does benefit the the end consumer or the end small business in a more uh, meaningful way. So really Quona was uh, basically to create a venture capital firm uh, that was about FinTech for inclusion so taking the best of microfinance and financial inclusions while addressing some of its limitations and really using venture capital for good. And that was another mission. If you've seen especially some of the negative stories that have come out of venture capital, I'm a believer that venture capital done properly and responsibly is an enormously powerful tool for good.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what were some of the initial challenges when building up the, the company? How was the early days versus compared to you know a bit later on?
1: I'm, I'm smiling as you ask that question because our, the Quona is a venture firm focused on fintech for inclusion in emerging markets. And all of those words were like kryptonite in 2014 when we started it. So one, venture capital. Venture capital in 2014 had come off its worst performing decade, literally in its history. And it was a product of funds getting too big and living off of management fee versus shared aligned interest, carried interest. So one was, again, in fact, our two leading LPs, our two sponsors, JP Morgan and TIA, the Teachers Pension Fund, told me to take out any reference to venture capital in our PPM and our prospectus. So again, dirty words. So venture capital was not a positive thing in 2014. Number two, emerging markets. So at that period, you know, we were coming off the global financial crisis. Emerging markets had had a severe devaluation from 2008 to 2014. So in general, the markets we were targeting also were not um, uh, very favorably looked at. And then again, inclusion or impact investing. I think Warren Buffett famously said. Impact investing is like a houseboat. It's not a very good house. It's not a very good boat. <laughs> so the, the, the belief was uh, it's the worst. You, know, you can't mix these two things together. You have to keep profits and purpose separate. So the whole premise was completely rejected. So I would say we were we had sort of everything you could do to raise a fund we didn't have and so it's quite if I look at you know just this crazy timing we were I think fortunate in a few things so I think the reason we were successful in spite of those challenges was number one um, the team so I you know I realized that that to overcome something this immense I needed to complement my own skills so I brought in sort of co-founders that had experience in VC and venture directly in mainstream venture, and also who had built technology companies from the ground up and scaled them. So that operational expertise and venture expertise was and track record, quite frankly, was really important. Two, we were very thesis-driven and very focused. So you can hear FinTech for inclusion. We had a very specific segment within the venture world that we had a strong conviction and belief that could work in emerging markets. So we didn't do venture generally. We were very clear on what we were doing and also even the countries. 70% of our portfolio today is focused on Brazil, India, and South Africa. So even in our geographic strategy, we were quite deliberate, and there's reasons for that. So I think the focus and thesis was the second reason. And the third was having sponsors. You know, there's always trade-off. I mean, Axion has been a phenomenal sponsor for us as our covering our initial fund. We've had phenomenal LPs that stepped up early and actually have continued to fund us in successor funds. And I think recognizing that, you know, of course there's trade-offs when you have a sponsor, you know, they ask for co-investment rights and ask for they ask for things because they are providing or backing you before anyone else, but the trade-off of having a stability and a foundation to build a global organization is really, I think, super important and a part of our success.
0: Did these challenges translate at the moment of recruiting a team
1: Oh yes, uh, you can imagine. So Jonathan and Ganesh, Jonathan more than Ganesh. My two co-founders are phenomenal. Jonathan Whittle and Ganesh Rangaswamy. Uh, Ganesh, I met and I knew before because he, like me, had worked in the private sector and joined an NGO in microfinance that was very commercial in its orientation. So you know his background is similar to Jonathan. He worked in technology, worked in a couple uh, venture-backed tech startups. And But then he went to work for Unitas, which is an NGO similar to Accion that is bringing microfinance uh, mostly in Asia. And so he had less skepticism than Jonathan, who had never worked at an NGO and just really wondered, one, um, he always worked, he was always the CEO. He was the founder all of his career. He's been the founder of some very successful companies and ran a venture firm. So this notion of you know having to you know answer to someone who might know less about the specific topic you're... Covering was, I think, a little bit of a challenge, but he, I think, everyone quickly appreciated what our sponsors brought to the table. So I think, in both cases, they were um, quickly brought in, and I mean, because things like I'll give you a very concrete example: we share some of the initial carried interest with our sponsor, and that, you know, obviously, that's you know, that has a trade-off, and that you know, if you are, that's your incentive to align your whole team, and so the more that you are taking one of your key tools and sharing with, you know, the sponsor that does, you know, take away one important alignment incentive tool, a remuneration tool. But again, I think in general, they, and also I think the other challenge was impact investing, again, was an unproven asset class. And this notion, we all believed you can have, you could be purpose-driven and profit-driven, but we hadn't proved it yet. So I think that was also, they took a big risk in joining um, an entity that really had no track record of date.
0: Absolutely. And now you mentioned 70% of your portfolio being in Brazil, India, and South Africa. These are obviously very large economies with hundreds if not thousands of fintech teams and fintech uh, startups. How do you sift through the noise and how do you find the best teams to invest in?
1: It's part of that being thesis driven. So we go in we, I mean, we're we all domain experts, so all of us have not only worked in the emerging markets and lived and speak the languages of the emerging markets we're working in, we've built companies there. So in my own case, I worked in Mexico with Compartamos, one of the leading microfinance institutions now called Hendera. Jonathan built a couple of uh, uh, venture firms in both Brazil and Argentina, Ganesh and India. So we have strong beliefs about where the industry is going. Whether it's alternative lending or payments or insurtech. So, even in fintech, there are a number of sub verticals that we make it our, our job to know a lot about, both what's happening in the local emerging market as well as analogs and developed markets. So, we sift through the noise by being very thesis driven, being very operational. So, we really look under the hood. When we look at a deal, We are going to look closely at the unit economics. We're going to look closely at the revenue model. We're going to look closely at the adjustable market. We're going to really um, do our own analysis as well as evaluating what the management team will bring us. But the third way, in addition to being very operational and very leveraging our domain, is the network we have. So, I mean, venture is built on people. And again, as, as, as ourselves, citizens of these countries and having lived and worked for many, many years... We've built a very trusted network and relationships that will both be a reference for us as the best uh, management teams look for who to back them, as well as a source of deal flow. So all of those things are very differentiated, and I think is why we've been able to get into the best deals in emerging markets.
0: And do you have local coverage all across uh, the globe in every country you cover?
1: Yes, and that's another very important point. This I call it global-local. So that global-local means that we have we have operations and headquarters in the U.S. and that allows us to visit Silicon Valley and New York and London and other centers, uh, venture ecosystems that are mature and have both business partners as well as potential acquirers for our companies. But we also have a very deep presence. Locally, so we have people on the ground in India and in Bangalore, in Mexico, in Singapore, in Lagos, in Cape Town, just to name a few. And that is in addition to the partners we have. For example, Action has an office uh, in Accra, and so as our sponsor, we leverage the feet on the ground of our sponsors, but also ourselves are our living and working locally, uh, which is really important. Adventure.
0: Got it. And and based on this local coverage. Are there any particular areas uh, of fintech that you are most excited about?
1: There are a couple of themes that we see. I mean, we're excited about a number of ones, but the, the ones that we see that have you know, kind of been recurring in our portfolio, alternative lending, and now what I call neobanking is the big themes, so this idea of really taking a process that has been very paper and people-intensive and very focused on the physical infrastructure you think of bank branches and really eliminating all that and bringing it online. And the power of what you, who you can serve, what you can do when you move from the analog world to the digital world is really exciting, both in terms of the data analytics, the way you KYC, you know, know your customer, client. Uh, it really is leveraging every new technology we have at our disposal, from cell phones to big data, to social media and bringing it to bear in these business models.
0: Got it, yeah, you actually, you mentioned Neobanks. Just wanna point out that we have both Pedro Conrade and Marcelo Haddad from Neon Bank as guests on our podcast.
1: Oh, fantastic, they're they're a great team. They are just a, a fantastic company.
0: Absolutely, and it was a great episode. Great. So I I wanted to also hear a little bit about your view of the future for Corona. How does the road ahead look like?
1: We're super bullish. I mean, I would say even it's kind of funny, uh, and I, I don't at all mean to make light when I say this comment about the coronavirus, which of course is you know a terrifying black swan event and impacting lives. So yeah. not to belittle that at all, but I also think it really brings to life what we're doing. So this notion of how do you replicate the personal touch and the connection we need while um, being remote and removed. And I think we have had at Quona a very seamless transition to this work from home reality because we, that's how we operate. So we are very tight-knit as a, as a firm of only 20 people that are as global. I know that, you know, we know the kids of each other's, um, you know, the names of each other's kids and their spouses and kind of, you know, what, you know, sort of, they like to, you know, sort of eats and food choices. And I mean, that this notion of how do you maintain the strong, deep connection in spite of both time zones and many miles separating us, I think is the power of digital. It shows the positive that can happen. And I think, you know, the and that is in addition to the cost efficiencies I mean, what you're able to do and who they're able to reach which really Kona could not have existed 15 years ago the technology just was not there so it's pretty remarkable that a firm that has now over 350 million assets under management and investing in over 30 companies this all this whole reality it was created in the you know in less than a decade or yeah. so it's just a i think a real testament to the power of technology to really reinvent uh, reality, and I think in emerging markets, that you know we made a big bet on emerging markets, and if you look at even this COVID crisis, I mean, China within two months controlled the crisis, and you know they, you know, by some measures are will have some of the early vaccines. You know, this notion of who is, if you compare China, Peru, you know, look at how some emerging markets are responding, you know, very decisively, very data-driven, very thoughtfully versus how Italy and the UK or the US are responding. I mean, I would say it's very clear who the models are. So we've always been bullish in emerging markets. You know, we also very much believe in developed markets. It's not like we're saying one is better than the other. But we do really believe that both have an important role to play in prosperity and that we have something to learn that maybe we've been ignoring for too long.
0: Absolutely. And with, in light of of this uh, coronavirus crisis, do you have any advice for founders and and, and tech professionals? Obviously, this is top of mind, and I'm sure everyone is having meetings at every level. How would you advise uh, the industry uh, tackles and, and overcomes this crisis?
1: So, what I would say, and again, this is very much Krona's philosophy. We are a back to basics kind of firm. So we, the way we operate, we don't spend a ton of money on marketing. We are, you know, really much about business fundamentals. So as we look at businesses, we look at again, I mentioned unit economics, cash flow, you know, smart growth. So all of the things that we would call just smart business development and business growth is certainly what we would advise our companies, which they do anyway. But we would be, you know, so there. I will say. There are other venture ver- firms that take a very different approach and are momentum investors, and you know, you know, sort of get in the the kind of frenzy of exuberance that sometimes leads to crazy, crazy valuations and crazy spend. That just, you know, so and I say so, even though our companies, I think, by nature are the way we are and kind of very solid from the core out, they are often in environments where different types of philosophies reign, and so I think just really being prudent and uh, I would say additional caution. So I like the phrase panic early, (laughs) meaning I think panic doesn't mean being sensationalist or emotional, but really prepare for the worst and you will be in very good stead to weather the storm. So, you know, in if you've worked in emerging markets as long as we have, you've this is not unusual in that, you know, specific countries have gone through dips. And so, you know, we are very familiar. I mentioned Peru in my own background, Brazil during inflation, Argentina, I mean, India all, India during demonetization. I mean, there are many examples, even in our immediate real life experience that have gone through some pretty extreme adjustments, never on a global scale. So that is definitely the black swan of today, but just the idea that there is a way to weather them. And it's by steady hand back-to-basics, conservative approach, and, and and a long time horizon, knowing that you know in 12, 24 months' time, we'll have a very different perspective than we do right now sitting in the middle of it.
0: Thank you, Monica. And with those uh, words of wisdom, I guess uh, I'd like to finish up with one question we'd like to ask to all of our guests, which is to hear about your uh, some of your personal hobbies and how you spend some of your time outside of Kona.
1: Yeah. So I would say two things. One is I am back to doing something when it was less cool. Now I'm a big ultimate Frisbee player. I actually uh, was, I played soccer as a child. and when I got to college, you know, soccer was kind of intense at the collegial level. And so really I didn't want my college experience to be all about playing soccer. So I switched to ultimate, which had a different, was as, uh, had required similar athleticism. It's a very, you know, sort of a, a, a demanding sport, but a different perspective on you know uh, it was you know it was um you know it it didn't seem as dire or make or break if you won the championship or not. So I've been my my both my kids are big ultimate players, so that is something that and is still safe to do you know sort of in your backyard. So you can kind of do it even in the Corona crisis. So that's a and it's easy to carry around. The other thing I'm um I'm a math brain, I'm left brain, but I. I think the reason why I do venture is that I, I like to connect with people and I like the idea of problem solving creativity. And for me, music uh, brings both left and bright, right, right, together. And so I've re, after, you know, many years of kind of letting my daughter play piano, I've kind of come back to um, playing now that I'm at home a lot more and less on a plane. I've been uh, sitting down at the keyboard, which has been a remarkable surprise at how much comes back as you sit and tap in other parts of your brain.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Monica. And we do appreciate you joining us.
1: Thank you so much. Stay safe.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.